Today, we feature two authors, each writing about important history and the people living through it. One, though based on real people, is told through fiction, and the other through deeply researched nonfiction. Each book is rich in story and characters. Judith Berlowitz brings us Home So Far Away, set in Europe during the rise of fascism and the Spanish Civil War. And Jory Lewis reveals the culture and peanut trade in Western Africa that forever changed the place in Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. What fascinates me so much with both of these books is the similarities between the late 19th and early 20th centuries and our current social and political realities, really on a global scale. In the case of Home So Far Away, people were fighting for freedoms and independence against the tyranny of dictatorship, with freedom fighters from all over the world converging on Spain. And we'll talk with Judith Berlowitz about her book, Home So Far Away, in just a bit. Right now, we'll talk with Jory Lewis on her book that tells the story of a certain crop, peanuts, that emerged as a global commodity after the international slave trade was largely abolished. Her very specific examination of this piece of history is relevant in helping us understand the twisted complexities of global agriculture, commerce, diet, and culture today. In Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history, I found the descriptions of hierarchy and slavery within Western Africa as fascinating as the peanut economy. Lewis depicts an interesting cultural dynamic and some fascinating characters propel her story of colonialism, slavery, the transcontinental peanut trade, and peanut cultivation in Western Africa in the late 19th century. Jory Lewis is an award-winning writer who writes about the environment and agriculture, and she splits her time between Illinois and Dakar, Senegal, from where I spoke with her. This is a tale of peanuts and of people, and so many aspects of the story intrigued me that it took us a while to get there in our conversation. Jory Lewis presents a rich tapestry of Western African history and culture and agriculture in her book. So let's listen to our conversation. Jory Lewis, I'm happy to talk to you today from halfway across the world. Thanks for having me on, Suzanne. This is a story of a place, a peanut, and a changing social and cultural landscape in Western Africa, in what is present-day Senegal. What drew you into this world and telling us this story? I always sort of struggle to answer this. You know, I I was just uh, in the right place, right? I was living in Senegal. I I still am <laughs> living in Senegal. And uh, when I first moved here, was with a fellowship to write about food security uh, in West Africa. And so I was, you know, I moved here and I was sort of absorbed in understanding how the agricultural economy worked, 
um, what uh, the sort of different agricultural methods were, like what were the sort of blockages in the market? What, what was this whole thing we called food security? What were the challenges to, to maintaining sort of access to, to staple foods, especially? And um, the peanut is, of course, Senegal's uh, main product for export and had been for some, you know, over 100 years. So I started to spend a lot of time in the peanut basin, in the peanut growing regions and thinking about the peanut. Uh, and then, you know, so that explains sort of like part of the story, I think. But uh, the sort of slavery aspect of it sort of came along, like also as a little bit of a, a surprise and seem to have a kind of relationship to the peanuts that I didn't know before. It is a, a big part of the story. And what you do right away in the book is shift the reference point of slavery from one that we're familiar with from from the Europe and the West, where by the late 19th century, uh, slavery had been and the slave trade had been formally abolished. But you shift that reference point right back to Africa and expose a little bit about the slave culture there, which I think maybe many readers will have maybe a general awareness of, but but not really understand the underpinnings of that. So maybe you could could talk a little bit about that. So... I say in the book that slavery is a condition, sort of enslavement is a condition that existed everywhere on every continent at various times uh, throughout history. So, I, you know, I think in America, especially because of our, our American centrism, we have a tendency to only understand a kind of singular experience of enslavement. But, um, you know, even within the Americas, the Americas in general, the United States of America wasn't the largest slave system, right? But um, in West Africa, especially like the area that I know best, I cannot speak about Central Africa or South Africa or East Africa. I don't, I don't, uh, I can't sort of also map onto Africa a generalization. But I will say in this part of West Africa, there are a number of extremely hierarchical societies. And within those societies, there is always, you know, sort of like substructure of enslavement that was, you know, a part of it, a kind of caste structure almost. And that enslavement, um, like later enslavement, was typically of, of like captives, like war captives. So slaves were made usually from someone, you know, across the savannah or over the mountain or, or whatever who you made war on and uh, then took as, as war captives, essentially. Now, after that, those are this kind of, there's, there exists sort of multiple layers of enslavement. So there's this, the first generation sort of captive who can be sold like at will and that's closer to the kind of condition of chattel slaves that we're familiar with in the United States. But in uh, this part of West Africa too, there's a kind of, um, we call it like domestic slavery. I guess we might call them house slaves, but in, in this, this understanding of things, they're people who are kind of like in a midway and in, in a kind of like integration process, if that makes sense, so that they're a part of the kind of body politic 
of the place. And um, they usually cannot be sold, but they still also exist with a um, status that is lower and that's unchangeable. So that that's also sort of similar. And I think we should mention that the time frame that, that you address in the book is really the late 19th century. And France is um, trying not to own this area or, you know, have it be a, a colonial aspect of their holdings. But really, there was a lot of fuzziness around all that. And um, that became an interesting part of the story, too. The, the um, French who had abolished slavery, so they didn't want slavery on their lands, but yet they wanted domination over this area of, of Western Africa. So that created a kind of strategic mix um, there on the ground. And you tell a lot of the story through a couple of major threads or streams. And one really is um, the plight of uh, Walter Taylor, who was a Protestant minister. So I wonder if you can talk about Walter Taylor and how you encountered him and chose to have him be a vessel for your storytelling about this time in history there. Sure. But I wanted to just add one little clarification. So the French are have abolished slavery on their lands. And yeah, so that's sort of one aspect of things. And at the same time, they are trying to sort of dominate this area through colonialism, which people in Senegal, it's interesting, will also kind of see as a kind of enslavement. Colonial, they sort of see a connection between, they see colonialism as enslavement, which is its own little thing. But I think more importantly, and this is mostly kind of what the book is really trying to get at, is that the French are also turning a blind eye to the enslavement being done to produce the goods that they are buying. So they are nominally saying no slavery on our land, but just outside our land, sure, we can use all the slave labor necessarily, or people are using slave labor to produce peanuts or produce other things, and that doesn't bother them. So I think that that's a sort of a key sort of hypocrisy to kind of take hold of, you know, as you as you read the book. Uh, now, yes, so Walter Taylor is one of the main characters of the book. He is a, a Protestant missionary, a black man from Sierra Leone, but who uh, somehow ends up <laughs> being a, a French Protestant missionary in, in the kind of most French place in West Africa at the time, which is this town called saint Louis. You know, I first encountered uh, just a sort of uh, a reference to Walter Taylor in another in another um, academic book, and and I um, wanted to know more about him, and uh, I just sort of went down a huge rabbit hole, learning everything I could. It turned out that the French Protestant mission that he worked for had um, you know some 20 years of correspondence of Walter Taylor and the director, different directors at different times. And uh, I was able to sort of to use those to construct a pretty good narrative about Walter Taylor's life. So for me, Walter Taylor, oh, there's just he sort of touches on on so many themes in the book. I mean the first and sort of most important part of it is that he starts a 
a sort of outreach program that the mission for runaway slaves, a shelter for runaway slaves in San Luis, because at the time people could come to San Luis and get freedom, but it wasn't given to them automatically. So they had to wait and hide for about three months before they could take their freedom. And so Walter Taylor had a kind of network to, to help people hide themselves before they could get their freedom. And in some cases would help them to like pay a kind of um, resale price to pay for themselves essentially. So um, that's the sort of most important intersection for Walter Taylor in the book. But then you kind of follow him throughout the book as he's trying to kind of navigate a number of, of, um, of difficult situations, like as a, as a black man in a colonial city where he's not supposed to have as sort of as much power as he has and to have as much influence as he has. So yeah, and he's, he's also engaged in a kind of larger discourse about colonialism and assimilation. On one hand, he's, he, he preaches even sometimes very forcefully about how the sort of Africans don't, shouldn't have to alter their culture to be Christian. That's basically one of his, his arguments. But at the same time, he's, he's very much sort of implementing these types of sort of assimilationist pressures on his, his church population of freed slaves. So there's, there are a number of sort of contradictions in his life, but he's also a very interesting, complicated character. And he really believed in the cause of emancipation and education. And part of this correspondence, and, and when he would travel abroad, it was largely based in that, in his, as you say, sheltering people so they could become free or emancipated. And so that was a big part of his discourse with, with others and in raising funds as well. And he was always asking for help. He was a man who really did work a lot, but he had kind of a weak constitution. So it, it seemed like it was always a struggle for him to really get what he he needed from the church. Yeah, I think there are a number of reasons for that. I don't know. I, I think you have even touched on something that I never really completely understood. Like, why is the Paris Space Mission, why they're they're so stingy with the funds, basically, right? Like for years, I think some several years, he's he's working alone, which isn't a situation that should happen. But they're having trouble sending missionaries. But that's only one part of the reason. Part of it is just the budget. Like they don't want to send very much more money. Um, Walter Taylor, you know, even spends that first year of the shelter when the shelter is running. He spends some amount of his own money. So he's overextended. And then, you know, in later years, he's actually paying the mission back. I don't think I write that in the book, but that's, that is actually something that happens to him. And yeah, and then, you know, the, the, these coastal outposts, these kind of uh, proto-colonial towns are, are, you know, as you might expect with always like new ships in port, they're just like full of diseases. And Walter Taylor seems to be affected often by any number of different types of illnesses that may either be like viruses or just, you know, some kind of sounds like bacterial infections. And then he has asthma. He, he just has a lot of problems, I think, in general. 
and he he spends much of the book longing for a vacation you know and um but he just keeps plugging away there and you you bring up disease and that there was an undercurrent of that as well um just how rampant it could be especially for people who were moving into the area yellow fever you called it yeah, yeah, there was yellow fever. So there are a few chapters, one specifically, where you really get sort of gutted with the effects of yellow fever. But even in an earlier chapter, I discuss um, the effects of a cholera pandemic. And it, I think it's, I forget if it's one of the very first sort of global pandemics, this, this particular cholera outbreak. But, you know, I think it's one of those cases where I was doing a lot of archival research. Um, and sometimes like you get, I don't know, I don't know if I can explain like these, sometimes, you know, I'm interested in mostly like agricultural things or things related to slavery, but sometimes like in the archives, you have just general situation reports, right? And so I came across, especially in the Gambian archives, this like incredible situation reports from the Gambian administrator, where he's just like this incredible language. He's just like, we're dying, you know, every, every day there's like, wheelbarrows of people being wheeled out so it was just like incredible detailed um, documents sometimes I just felt I felt called to to use but not only for that reason but because um, that particular cholera outbreak had a number of political consequences across the region too especially in the region that that I talk about the most in the book this, this place called Kajor so um yeah, I think the the kind of health situation, let's call it, and as yeah. well as the agricultural situation and the political situation, like always dovetail. Yes, yes. And, and so it goes in the book that that this is all kind of woven together. And before we move on, of course, we need to talk a little bit about peanuts. Um, but I was also interested in the play um, between the Catholics um, who seem to really dominate the missionary game um, as far as Christianity was concerned and, and the Protestants who were trying to get an inroad and Walter Taylor was kind of the conduit for that. But there was also this big Muslim influence uh, throughout Northern and, and Western Africa and Taylor was always trying to get the leadership in France to to really understand those dynamics. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those dynamics between the Catholics, Protestants, and then the Muslim influence. Yeah, it took me actually, you know, I hadn't studied a huge amount about sort of um, like French Protestantism before, right? Uh, of course, because it's, it's very different the relationship between the Protestant church and the state was so timid, right? And with good reason, because they'd been like persecuted for like hundreds of years. And, um, you know, for the French Protestants, it was within living memory, you know, still that persecution. So Protestants in France just had like a very interesting um, uh, sort of stance vis-a-vis the state. So they were really... Um, always pushing, uh, pushing policies of secularism, which is, you know, like Protestants or like, say, like evangelicals in the United States are against, pro- you know, secularism, right? So there's this kind of way that that doesn't make sense to, 
didn't make sense to me at first, but then I had to kind of re rethink about like the whole sort of um, historical context. So, I mean, you know, for so many years, the Catholic Church had been so close to the French state and, you know, France is going through a, a huge amount of upheaval. I don't, I don't think we can kind of underplay, like we can't understate, overstate, one of these words, <laughs> the amount of up upheaval happening in France during the 19th century, right? Like there are a number of revolutions, the government changes several times. And so that, that sort of power of the Catholic Church and its closeness to the state is being also, you know, undermined when, you know, when the sort of each republic happens, essentially. So those are, that's the kind of interplay of the political dynamics that are happening. So the Protestants are always worried about their situation necessarily because of this long history of discrimination and, and persecution, really. Uh, and then overlaid on this is the fact that they're in a, you know, they're, they're in a country that, especially the north of Senegal, had been Islamized, you know, a thousand years before, practically. So that there weren't really very many people who were willing to convert as such from people who were, who were Muslim weren't really interested in converting, right? So that the um, the mission had to kind of think outside the box and to 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 look towards people who were not already followers of an Abrahamic religion, right? So, the, in a way, sort of the, the 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 mission for the shelter for runaway slaves was, in one way, a kind of uh, charitable uh, endeavor, a kind of activity to help people who had been enslaved. But on the other other side, it was because many of the people who had been enslaved were coming from backgrounds that were like animists, essentially, and who weren't sort of dedicated Muslims, even though many of them did have Muslim names. So the, the, there was that um, that kind of uh, dynamic at play for in this sort of calculation to form this outreach program with uh, runaway slaves. And Taylor really seemed to understand that dynamic well, and seemed to always be trying to educate others on that dynamic and um, hard when they're in France and, and he was not. And th this is a tale of peanuts as well. Um, but also, I want to say the agricultural and environmental effects of growing this crop, especially in this part of Africa where there seems to be a very short growing season dependent on rains. And because of the economics of trading this crop, and it, it seems like at this point in the 19th century, peanut oil and peanuts themselves became a, a very valuable commodity. Um, but best practices weren't always followed, which in some areas led to poor growing conditions. And then there were there were people who were trying to get in on um, small farmers, maybe trying to get in on the peanut trade and would be cutting down other native vegetation to plant peanuts. And so I wonder if you could talk about that whole thing about peanut as a crop on land and how it was managed. Yeah, I mean, I think I tried to sort of show throughout the book a kind of scaling up of the peanut cultivation. So, I mean, one of the main reasons that 
this is a you know kind of technical thing, but right, like one of the reasons why there's an expansion in enslavement uh, in Senegambia that's linked to the peanut trade is that there aren't enough laborers, free or otherwise, or kind of you know the cropping system in Senegambia had a kind of dependent labor system, like you might have nephews that come work for you or you know other types of members of your clan or whatever who right, have a kind of dependent status but um there weren't enough laborers in the region right so that just means that the region wasn't well populated there was a need for additional labor and that's what formed the kind of market for enslavement so there's we see as the book goes on that more and more peanut lands going into cultivation uh, more and more peanuts are being grown instead of other things. So like other things that might have been grown in rotation, like millet, like sorghum, like possibly other vegetables like okra or cow peas or something like that, right? So, you know, we're, we're kind of this, experiencing this as it goes along. And then you hear tales of like itinerant farmers coming. Also, some of those people are are actively enslaved. Some of them are just formerly enslaved, but there's this way of way in which this kind of pool of labor also moved. Uh, and we don't completely understand their statuses. And they were given land, you know, what those people did with the land is what because they needed money to grow, they needed money to pay their ad tax, or they needed money for dowries, of course, they grew peanuts is it was their best option to get cash, essentially. So there's, because of the kind of economic logic of the peanut, that it was one of the best ways to get money, and it became this expansion to the exclusion of almost everything else. So that's kind of what happened, I think. Um, and as that expansion is happening, you're seeing a kind of like breakdown in crop rotation systems in many places. You're seeing people cut down, um, woodlands that in especially in Kajor where the soil is very sort of lightweight and sandy which is its hallmark um you know in places where trees grew when you cut them down I mean it just adds up to like um a kind of effect of erosion leaving them vulnerable to both wind and water erosion so all those things are all those things are, are sort of happening over the course of the book and we kind of see them go on and we see that there's a kind of conversation that even the administrators and merchants are having about like the uh, what they call the degradation or the degeneration of the peanut and it's happening further south at first but eventually starts happening in Kajor and they don't really know why and the answer is it's both all of those things I just named the kind of um, lack of rotation the the, the sort of uh, deforestation, but also a kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, consequence par excellence of this peanut agriculture writ large, if that makes sense, so that people needed so much uh, the, the money and they've been so indebted typically to merchants that they're selling just everything, even including their seeds and getting back this kind of like bad seeds so there's a particular agronomist who refers to it as a reverse selection because they're just like getting back junk seeds and 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 planting them in in overworked land and uh land that's really like already tapped out because of all these other additional environmental factors I found it um to be almost a microcosm of what has happened is happening globally really the farmers 
were growing peanuts, but then they had to buy the things that they formerly might have grown themselves and that they altered their real environment to accommodate this crop that, you know, it just creates this imbalance. And I think we see this happening all over the world. It's happened all over the world. And, and why our um, food, uh, our ability to, you know, obtain food is so skewed on a global basis. And I think you might have even said, that's what it initially maybe got you into this whole study that resulted in the book. Oh, yeah. You know, I've never actually thought about, I mean, of course, I thought about it like that, but I never, yeah, I didn't connect the, my food, my initial food security interest to this, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I was at an, an event here in Dakar uh, this last week about the book and a sort of renowned historian picked up on this right away about, I have this chapter called Chebujin, which talks about Senegal's national dish which is a dish of fish and rice. And of course, rice wasn't really cultivated in Senegal, except in the southern part, very southern part, which in the 19th century wasn't really a part of Senegal. I think I call in the book, a moral cause and effect of peanut cultivation, right? So like, so that there's a relationship between the peanut agriculture and its displacement of millet cultivation and an increased exportation of rice, which is even done intentionally by the French. The French, I found this 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 crazy document <laughs> wherein the, the the governor at the time says it's not to our benefit to allow the 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 blacks, he says, or the natives to grow millet and we would lose this commerce. So we should encourage them to grow other things like peanuts. So, and so that they have to buy their, their staple cereals from us, namely rice, which we will bring on our, our ships imported from French Indochina, right? So there's this whole kind of yeah. way, this like displacement of the diet that started there and still kind of dogs the Senegalese economy today, which where most people still eat rice every single day. And most of it's still imported. Yeah. And Jory, to me, it opened up a lot about this part of Africa and made me pretty curious about it, too. So I appreciate your bringing this to us. And um, it's a story of what happened there. But to me, the implications are are pretty big um, for us on a global basis. So thank you. And thank you for uh, talking to me today from Senegal, which I think is pretty darn cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a really lovely conversation. Jory Lewis, the book is Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. I am Suzanne Lang, and I'm so happy to share these authors with you today. You're listening to KRCB's A Novel Idea. Right now in America, we observe how tenuous democracy is, and abroad, we see how fascist or religious dictators violently disrupt the democratic desires of people. 
through bombs, through brutality, through censorship. And this is certainly not a new playbook, either here or abroad. Judith Berlowitz takes us back to the early 20th century struggles in Spain and Europe with the rise of Francisco Franco and Adolf Hitler, all through the lens of a woman making her way in the world in her novel Home So Far Away. A lifelong academic, Berlowitz has worked as a professor of Spanish and cultural studies, but her obsession with genealogy and curiosity about a forgotten distant relative led to her first novel that shows the rising tide of fascism in Europe, the growing anti-Jewish sentiment in Germany, and the Spanish Civil War that shook the world, all through the epic story of a woman who ultimately enlists in the 5th Regiment. Here is our conversation. Judith Berlowitz, Home So Far Away. Welcome. I'm delighted to talk to you today about this book. I'm delighted to be able to talk about it. And I'm so happy to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me, Suzanne. Your book is set in the transformational times in Germany when Hitler was pushing his way to power there and when Spain aimed to form a strong democratic republic. And it centers around a woman, Clara, a German Jew who migrates to Spain. This is her story, and it's told to us in the form of her diary. And it's loaded with factual details of the period. So it's a lot to unpack here. So why don't we start first with what brought you to write and publish this, your first novel, and in your 80s, no less. So pick any one of those points you want to jump off on. Of course, I'll try to jump off from all of them. But I will start with what led me to actually write a novel. My background is academic. As you said, it's my first novel. And everything I wrote as an academic person was based on fact and uh, had to be proven and verified and sourced and footnoted and so on. Then uh, toward the end of my academic career, I became more interested in genealogy or more, maybe I should say, addicted to genealogy. And I came across while researching a family that that I only discovered kind of late in life, the Phillipsborn family. I came across a bit about a woman named Clara Phillipsborn who volunteered in the Spanish Civil War. And I was very excited about that because being a teacher of Spanish and a student of Spain and Spanish culture and Spanish language, I really resonated with that fact. So uh, after I finished the research, the genealogical research book, which is pretty academic, I uh, wanted to know more about this Clara person, but the information about her was very conflicting and inconsistent and hard to find. She herself kind of drew me in into her, even though she was she's no longer living. So I decided that since the facts that were supposed facts that were reported about her were so conflicting that I think she needed to defend herself. And I needed to hear her voice. I needed to give her a voice. And I thought that the best genre in which to do that would have been her diary. But she didn't leave a diary. So why don't I write her diary? That's, that's what led me to do it. 
So I had really no experience in uh, even writing my own diary, much less that of another person. <laughs> <laughs> but I just kind of plunged in. I took I took the took the plunge, I guess you could say. So that's where the real detail comes in. Uh, because this is a very historically rich story. And because she's writing in her diary, it's very topical, has a lot of her own questions and observations about things. But so it really did start with your own search for family. That's correct. And it didn't stop there either, because in order to find out more information about Clara, I had to do more genealogical research and see to whom she was related to see if she had descendants. Uh, and I did actually find people. And I actually even found a person who knew her, who was close to her and gave me some details about her. Even those details, though, conflicted with details from other family members. So that even bolstered my desire and my, or my need to, uh, to write her diary to hear her voice. So the story is largely set in Spain and during the Spanish Civil War, but it starts in Germany and a lot of references made to her family. And also, of course, uh, Hitler, there was just the spreading fascism. And he was a part of that even in Spain. So that's a answering my question of, well, why did she start out in, in Germany? And it's because you were keeping kind of a, a somewhat of an architecture that was based in, in reality. Oh, exactly. That, that was my need. Uh, and I needed to learn about that in order to write about it, too. Uh, like the word architecture that you use, because it, the book is built on the historical architecture, the historical framework. But on that, uh, the human, I guess history is human, of course, but the, um, let's say, events from those events come the personal events of, of my main character and the other characters of the book. But that period, as I was writing about it and as I was learning about it, resonated so much with the events of our time that I, I actually was aware and conscious of making, of drawing parallels between that period and ours, the rise of fascism in Germany and what I perceive as the rise of fascism in the United States. And my book is not doctrinaire. I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to teach even, but just to show. And I hope that my book shows that those parallels. It sure does. Uh, many of her diary entries are observations and certain, I would call it, reportage of, of what was happening. And at one point, she is quoting from an interview between journalist Jay Allen with Francisco Franco, who was leading the assault on his own country. And Allen asked about following the will of the people, and Franco's reply was, elections never represent the will of the people. And it was chilling in light of what we are experiencing in our own country. And um, it just was like cold water splashed in my face when I came across that quote. Oh, I, I really resonate with your physiological reaction, because just as you talked about it, I wish I could show you that my goosebumps on my <laughs> arm, but... That is such an, a strong point in, in, the, in the book as you, 
as you uh, call attention. T to tie that in with genealogy, whenever I uh, tried to document or did document the historical, the historic people in my book, I often did their genealogy, which meant that I would look up where they were born or who they were parents and, and so on. And I looked up Jay Allen and I actually found his granddaughter uh, and we're now in touch. So it, that kind of it explains a little bit about how, um, how the book for me is a, is a personal reflection as well as a reflection of, of, the, uh, of the times. You just use the word connections here. We're making, we as readers are making connections across history through the story you're presenting. And uh, you are making personal connections with a, a whole slew of people, it sounds like. That's true. That's why I'm, I'm addicted to genealogy, which kind of takes me out of my little box that I kind of create for myself. But um, it also allows me to to do a sort of a service, which maybe even uh, fiction writing is a kind of service or, 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 or historical fiction is a sort of a service in that I've made, I've been able to make connections between myself and other people and also between people and their lost or not so lost ancestors. I, I recommend that everyone uh, research their own family tree and see, see what they can find and then see how far it leaves them. Not, not far away, but uh, far in it leaves them. Interesting. I also found chilling your representation of the war there, uh, the war in Spain. And our character, Clara, and we'll get back to her in a minute, is serving there and she is tending to wounded and she's traveling around the country doing so. And so she's describing the, the bombing and it just reminded me, it, it felt so immediate and especially given the situation in Ukraine where people are fighting for their national identity and heritage and, and really one, I think we are framing that war there as a fight against fascism. So it was just really seemed like the same sort of tactics of of attacking civilians who are just trying to live their lives or go to their schools or give birth in a hospital. And it had me questioning so much of um, the 20th century and now the 21st century of, of where we are with all this. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. It was really hard for me to to contemplate while I was researching and writing the book. So it was actually in Spain where that policy of harming a civilian population in order to obtain a military victory was initiated. It was Hitler and Franco and Mussolini, that lovely triumvirate, the three, I don't know what's, that uh, carried out that that plan, which is, as, as you noted, is uh, alive and well today. Yes. And the thing that is searing in, in some ways in both instances, even though the Ukraine is a separate country, but very much related with, you know, Russian uh, people, and uh, but that Franco was destroying his own country and he says at one point, he will do whatever that takes. And if annihilating so many 
Spanish citizens was part of it, uh, then he was willing to do that. And that still seems shocking to me today, that that is a tactic to um, within your own country. And I thought about it and thought about our own civil war as well. Now I'll get off of my <laughs> my personal reflections on all on all that and and really move back to our main character of Clara, who um, Clara is kind of in the middle of all this and and she's going she's going with it and and even thriving. Um, she's, she's not a young woman. I mean, she's, I I guess I would say closer to middle age than being a young woman, but she is really having a deep experience in her life and feeling a lot of fulfillment. So set up Clara for us. All right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, which actually is, is good as a good versus evil, uh, philosophy because it's important to Clara as well. It uh, takes her back to her days as a as a student of Judaism and the teaching that that humans are born with both a good and an evil nature and it, uh, and that we must choose between which one. And so she does evolve in the book. She learns uh, from being in Spain. She learns about other cultures. She learns that there are other ways of living that don't necessarily um, represent wrong ways of living. She makes some mistakes. What she does learn in the in the book is um, more humanity. And of course, since this is presented as her diary, she does express her her most inner thoughts and experiences. And one thing that it's not a primary theme of the book, but it's a noticeable one. And and that is all around gender. Clara is a single woman. And as I said, she's not a young woman. And you directly depict her sexual activities, her sexual pleasures. And as you say, she makes some mistakes and has some bad experiences and experiences also a lot of warmth and love. So talk about including this aspect in the book. Okay, I'd love to do that. Um, uh, I was wondering how feminist I should make Clara because I'm actually for molding her as I'm as I'm depicting her. And I Again, I did not want to be doctrinaire about it, but I did want to depict her as a feminist, and I wanted to show the rise of feminism in Spain. Uh, so I do have elements of that in the book, though, without saying, um, I'm not, I guess you would say she's not a card-carrying feminist, but I also wanted her to be able to uh, show her sensual side. Uh, so there, there are some... Um, sexual moments, shall we say, in the book. But those uh, events or those uh, moments, I think, also evolve for her, or she evolves with, with them, and she was is able to learn from from her experiences. Uh, I don't want to get too, too, too <laughs> uh, shall we say, spoilerish right. <laughs> with this, but I... No, we don't need to do that. But right. uh, but 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 she does she does learn uh, some things. Maybe she doesn't become perfect, and um, that's up to the readers to decide. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Well, she has the experience of many women uh, in that regard. And in 1931, uh, women in Spain didn't have the right to vote. And we should say that Clara moved from Germany to Spain in 1930. And these events really do take place uh, throughout the course of the 30s. And women didn't have the right to vote then. Yet three women were elected to the parliament, and two of them did not support this right. So I was kind of wondering what, what that was all about and what your perceptions of that were. That was such an interesting phenomenon. And I can see the point of view from both those who supported uh, women's suffrage and those who did not. And here's another coincidence. Here's another connection. I just copied that passage out of my book today for people to read at one of the launches, a discussion that Clara has at the university with her female students that she has kind of organized into a, a women's support group. And I think the the, uh, the reasons for for uh, women's suffrage in the Spanish uh, parliament, the Cortes, were, are so obvious, I don't think I need to mention them. But the reasons against women's suffrage proposed by uh, intelligent, brilliant, feminist Spanish women, lawyers like uh, Victoria uh, Ocampo, do make some sense. And their argument for voting against women's suffrage is that women have been so conditioned to be subservient to men, and they have also been conditioned in ignorance. They have been, they've been raised illiterate. They were raised by a, uh, a Catholic religion that condemned them to eternal motherhood and subservience, and that that if women were allowed to vote, according to these feminist women in parliament, they would vote for their oppressors. So um, I'm, I'm avoiding a spoiler, but uh, just take note of that. And can you imagine if that would happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it comes back to the church is was the, like the takeaway for me there. And of course, literacy. And the interplay of the church in this story not just the Catholic Church, but uh, she's a Jew in moving into Spain, which has a lot of Islamic influence, which I think surprised her. And also the Catholic influence. And her first trip to Spain is visiting an uncle who was moved there. And nobody knows he's Jewish. He becomes a, a Catholic. And Clara, she initially hides her Jewish heritage when she is in Spain, especially coming from Germany. But during the course of the war, as more foreigners come into the country to join the Republican forces fighting Franco, she is more open about it. And so maybe talk about all of this uh, religious interplay. She has a strong Jewish background, but she is also of a generation that is assimilating very, uh, very quickly, sometimes under pressure, of course, uh, the huge amount of conversions during the rise of Nazism led to uh, intermarriage and practically to the loss of, the, of Jewish culture in, in Germany. Uh, so she brings that to Spain as well. So she's not Orthodox by any means, but she does have that Jewish background. As you, as you mentioned, the International Brigaders, somewhere I have the amount of Jews, the, the number of Jews, which is 
almost over overwhelming of Jews in the international brigades, which is an issue as well because Stalin wanted to uh, deny that that they were that they were Jews, and uh, so that only recently have a lot of the brigaders being uh, have a lot of the brigaders' descendants admit that they come from an, a Jewish background. But uh, I, I think I agree with you that the, that she's going to become a, a bit more comfortable, if not completely open about her Judaism. While she is in Spain, some of her siblings left Germany for places they considered safer. Her father does not. He stays there. He manufactures uniforms for the German army, which is an awkward situation for him to be in, but he stays. And at one point, Jews are stripped of their German citizenship. And Clara ponders what it means to be stateless. And she recalls something in Latin, and you thankfully translated it for us. I am human, and I think that nothing human is alien to me. And that caught my attention, too, that she was willing to go with that also. It, it didn't necessarily frighten her. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. Uh, her being stateless, her maybe creating a home, and the name of your book is Home So Far Away. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, and thanks for quoting Terence as well. Uh, that's the that's the Latin poet, the Roman poet who 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 wrote that phrase. I think that I really didn't know what the book was about until I came upon that title, and that title, "Home So Far Away," is based on an anthem of one of the battalions that volunteered from Germany in Spain in, in the Spanish Civil War, the the, the Telman Battalion. And I think for her, being stateless partly by choice and partly by decree. I mean, I have, the, I have an image of the card in which she is declared stateless, given the, given the title, the branded with the name Sarah, which all the Jewish women were, and as the men were branded with Israel, the men who were uh, decitizenized, I don't know what the correct word is, uh, they, the, whose citizenship was annulled, whose German citizenship was annulled. So in a sense, I think for Clara being stateless, is is a is a type of freedom no no roots no no ties it can be dizzying and scary but uh it it can also be liberating and that is a, a main theme of the book yes and she was a a polyglot of sorts and and made an effort to communicate in several languages and if she didn't know one she tried to learn it and that made her valuable in, in the war and again it, it struck me that you said it's a sort of freedom and even her language skills was a sort of freedom for her. So despite this very messy war, she was really a person coming into her own. Yes, and the language element enriched her and made her more of a person. Uh, again, it, it sort of uh, jibed or, or harmonized with that Terence quote. For Clara, the more languages she knows, the the more she can connect, there's that word again, with others, with the other, and the less othered she feels. Your book, I notice, is also released in Spanish, and I, I believe that you 
maybe have taught Spanish. Is that uh, so? Tell tell us about your connection with the Spanish language and why this was so important to you to release the book in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I um, my second language is, is Spanish by by choice. I, I only started studying it in college, but then I married a Spanish man the first time around and became more fluent and. I was wondering, I was asking myself today if I'm bilingual, I would say I'm bilingual-ish, bilingual-oid. Uh, so my degree is in Romance Languages and Literatures, but with a, with a concentration in Spanish. So I did did teach Spanish for many years, Spanish language and culture. And the, the book, the Spanish version of the book is actually my own translation. Well, we have some readers who might enjoy that challenge of of reading the book in Spanish. Okay. So shall I give the title? Yes, please. Okay. It's called Diario de la Camarada Clara. And there's a subtitle, Una Enfermera de las Brigadas Internacionales. And it's published by um, El Boletín in Cádiz, Spain. That sounds to me like a very exciting thing for you to not only publish your first novel, but to have it also released in Spanish in Spain. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> it is open so many uh, places, so many spaces, so many highways and uh, opportunities to have that connection. And again, that connection. Judith Berlowitz, Home So Far Away is your novel. And uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us and for talking to me today, Judith. And I thank you for your inspiring questions and your inspiring presence, Suzanne. Thank you. My conversation with Judith Berlowitz and her novel is Home So Far Away. Earlier, we heard from Jory Lewis and her book is Slaves for Peanuts. I am Suzanne Lang. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. I have production help from Mark Prell. Listen to our podcast and find past episodes at krcb.org. Follow the program or podcast links. Thank you for listening. It's a novel idea.